Two brief uh, announcements before we get rolling. Um, one, just want to remind everyone that we are, you know, as usual at year end in our kind of end of the year giving push. I think we got like, is it 10 days till the new year now? What are we at? Whatever it is, we don't have much time. And so if you've been coming to South Valley for some time, you know the, the drill. If you're new, essentially it's this. Nonprofits rely on 25% of their kind of entire budget coming in in the month of December. And as a nonprofit, we're no different. And so we rely on December to be this extended act of generosity. And so we usually set a goal above our normal ties and offerings for the month of December. So for church-wide, our goal is $200,000 above what would normally come in in the month of December. And that's roughly kind of the same, same percentage that nonprofits across the country have to rely on. And so I ask you to, to prayerfully consider now and for the rest of the, new, the, rest of the remaining year to, to consider how you might go above and beyond what you normally do um, for this year in. Secondly, uh, Christmas Eve services, uh, we are not doing the same thing. So I found out many churches, when, when things line up like this, because it's like Sunday and then it's Monday, Christmas Eve, that they, you know, we, we were tempted to try to pull a fast one, and you could just do the same service two times in a row, same song, same sermon. Uh, just so you know, we did, no, I'm just kidding, we didn't do that. We, it's a different service, Christmas Eve service on Monday, uh, different service, different sermon, different songs, and we'll have a live nativity between services. Uh, which is awesome, and then after we take one of the lambs that are in the nat- nativity, we cook it up and barbecue it, uh, and we have a big Christmas Eve celebration. It's going to be incredible. Uh, we are having the live nativity, and the, the feast is up for interpretation. Uh, so we're in this series called Repeat the Sounding Joy, and it's, it's a series going through the Christmas songs, some of the great Christmas songs that we sing every year. We've done Joy to the World. We introduced a new song, Come and Stand Amazed, that hardly anyone had heard of. And this week, we end with a song that most, like, if you're an American, you probably know this song, at least the first verse. It's Hark the Herald Angels. But what I want to do today is just focus on one line, or not one line, one stanza, one section. It's on the screen. This is deep. I mean, this, this doesn't get any better than this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. It's like, that's deep. Yeah, that's deep. I mean, when people wrote these Christmas songs, they weren't just writing great melodies. They were theologically rich and robust. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The poetry is beautiful alone. Theology is even greater. Now, when this song was being written, uh, the author most likely, we can't be certain on this, this is speculation, but most likely their mind is being saturated in a biblical text, a biblical passage. And the author is most likely reflecting on the themes and components and elements of John chapter 1. Not speculation, but if he's not directly kind of meditating upon that passage, he certainly has saturated himself in the theology of John chapter 1 so that when he writes songs, they just kind of echo and repeat those themes and elements. So let's take a look at John 1. Because John 1 is equally deep. In the beginning was the Word. There's two angles to sort of look at this. 
One is from sort of like a Greek philosophical viewpoint. So there's Greek philosophy of the time that John would have been aware of that he, when he was writing this, where this word for word is the Greek word logos. It's where we get our word logo from. And logos in sort of the Greek philosophical circles was the, the substance of reason that structured the cosmos, structured reality or the universe. So in the Greek philosophical circles, logos, this word, is the substance of reason that structures reality. So it's like deep. Now John would have been aware of this. So when he says, in the beginning was the logos, he, he has that probably in the back of his mind. He's aware of that. But John is not a Greek philosopher, the Jewish follower of Jesus. So he primarily doesn't think through Greek philosophical categories. Again, though, he's aware of those and he knows what he's doing. He doesn't primarily think through those categories. He's a Jewish man. So when he hears the statement, in the beginning was the word, the first thing that comes to his mind is not philosophical abstraction from the Greeks, but what comes to his mind is the stories that he grew up with, the stories that his parents told him. Every day, every night, always around the campfire. And his stories begin with the great story of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was God. And so think of it like this. You know when you see kids who have watched Disney movies like way too many times, they can finish the line for you? Like you just say three words and the kid jumps in and, and finishes, finishes the line. It's like, or, or you can do this with like Star Wars, like impressive, most impressive, but what is it? You are not a Jedi yet. I think about 5% of you Star Wars geeks. <laughs> impressive, most impressive, but you are not a Jedi yet. You just finished the line. So for John growing up, if someone said, in the beginning, he would fill it in with not was the word. He would fill it in with, in the beginning, God. So in Hebrew, Genesis 1 is Bereshit bara Elohim. Elohim is the word for God. But what the author of John chapter 1 is doing is he's replacing this word, the Hebrew word Elohim, with the Greek word logos, word. So if you're a Jewish listener, you're going, John is doing something that's specifically grounded on page 1 of the Bible. In the beginning was not God according to John, but this logos, this word. And he goes on, in the beginning was the logos, the word, and the word was with God. There's God from Genesis 1, and the word was God. It's a very interesting way to communicate what's going on in Genesis chapter 1, now in John 1. In the beginning, there is Elohim, Hebrew God, but there's also the word, the logos. And this logos, who is identified as Jesus, is actually with God and God himself. So these are kind of the beginning steps in the doctrine of what we would later call the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And John is talking about how the Son, Jesus, has been with God and God for all eternity, and he was there in the beginning. And in fact, he goes on, he wasn't just there in the beginning, the Word, Jesus, Logos, is the one who is doing the creative work in Genesis 1. 
He goes on, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So verse 3, all things were made through him. This Jesus, this Logos, this word, everything that has been made has been made through him. He is the author of it. This is a, this is a huge claim. This is a massive claim. Jesus is not just a normal human being that did some nice things. Despite whatever our culture may say, he wasn't just a good teacher or a, a moral philosopher or someone that did some good things. He healed people who care about the poor. All those things are true. But John is saying this Jesus is logos. He is word. He is God. All things were created through him. Now, the passage goes on and talks about how John the Baptist testifies to this word and how he'll be rejected by his people, but it ends with an even more crazy verse than the first. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this logos, this word that is responsible for all of reality, all of existence, has somehow entered into our world and become one of us. It's become human. It's put on human flesh. Now, if you are here last week, we talked about kind of what that looks like philosophically or theologically, and we're not going to go over all of that, but just to briefly review, when we say that God became a human being, we're not just talking about like, oh, a super powerful person becoming a human being. We're talking about someone who is... has these theological attributes, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. And again, just to review, if you weren't here, these big words mean that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present. Like God is, he knows all things. Reflect on that. He knows everything. Not just like every human being alive today, but he knows every grain of sand on the face of the earth and he knows it intimately. He knows it down to its subatomic construction, like on the molecular level. What is a grain of sand composed of? What are the elements that make it? And he knows the the molecular structure of every single grain of sand on every single beach and he knows it intimately. He knows how many oxygen molecules there are in this room and he knows the answer to that for every room that ever was, is, or will be. He knows the entire DNA coding of every single human being that was or is today or will be. He knows the answer to every mathematical equation that not only has been asked, but that could possibly be asked because there's so much math that has never been done by a human being. He knows all of those things, and he knows them simultaneously. I talked last week about how um, like if you were to put your hand in front of your face, you don't have to like cognitively work through the steps to know that your hand is in front of your face. You just sort of like know it. It's like, oh, there's my hand. You don't have to think about it. God doesn't have to move from thought to thought when he's thinking about all things. He knows all possible things simultaneously in his eternal now. That's also necessitated by another theological attribute called immutability. Immutability means you can't change. So God doesn't change his mind, and he doesn't like move from thought to thought. So when God is presented with a problem, he's not thinking, oh, this, 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 and now I've concluded this, because that would necessitate change, but God is unchanging. 
And because God is unchanging, there's some really good news for us. God is always good and he's always beautiful. Because if God is completely unchanging, it means that if he is good by nature, he will always act in accordance with his good nature, therefore making it an impossibility for God to ever do something not good. He will always act in accordance with his nature, so he will only do good all of the time. Because despite the saying God can do all things, there are some things that God can't do. God cannot change, God cannot lie, God cannot do evil. Or to sum it all up, the slogan, God is good when, all of the time. So that is sort of like a brief review of the kind of philosophical look at what it means for God, the omnipotent, omniscient one, to become human. But again, that's a sort of philosophical look at it. And John, the author of John chapter 1, is not, he, he's aware of those categories. And trust me, he, he thinks those, those thoughts, but those aren't primary to him. That's not his primary filter. His primary filter is based upon his Jewish upbringing. So everything is filtered through what? The Bible, but specifically the Old Testament. And that's what's going on here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the way you know this is because there's a special, unique word that's used in this sentence. And the logos, the word, became human, flesh, and dwelt. The word for dwelt here is the Greek word skenao. And skenao literally means tabernacled. It's making the word tabernacle, like a temple, a verb. The word tabernacled with us, or he tented with us, or he templed with us. So John, when he gets to the climax of his first introductory chapter, he says, and the logos, the word, tabernacles with us. Now you got to think through the biblical lens, the Jewish Old Testament, our Old Testament. What, what is he trying to communicate by saying Jesus tabernacled with us? What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the like prototype, version one of the temple. And the temple and the tabernacle is the house, the building that holds the presence of God. Now God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, there's nowhere that you could go to escape God, even if you make your bed in hell, still there he will find you. But God specially manifests his presence in special location. Think like the burning bush with Moses, if you're familiar with Exodus. It's not as if God wasn't on that mountain where that bush was, and then he got there when it lit on fire. He was always there, but he manifested his presence in a unique way. The temple is the place where God is going to uniquely manifest his presence and live with his people. So think, in the center of the temple is a building called the Holy of Holies, and it's this perfect cube. And inside of the perfect cube called the Holy of Holies, it is said that that's where God lives. God is surrounded by walls. What John is saying is that the presence of God is now not surrounded by walls, but it's surrounded in what? Human flesh. Humanity. God is housed in flesh. The presence of God, the holy of holies, is now the body of the person, Jesus. Now the tabernacle is 
an interesting thing because there's two places in Scripture where even good Christians skip pages. Mm-hmm. I know. I know what you do. The first piece of literature that Christians skip when reading the Bible is what? Take a guess. Genealogy is good. You knew it. You didn't even have to think about it. It was like a hand in front of your face. You just guilty. You skip genealogies. Genealogies, if you're unaware, that's the part in Scripture where it says, like, you know, Mephibosheth begot Micah, Micah begot Bubba, and Bubba begat Jehoahaz. Then the second place is when you get these long descriptions of the tabernacle. Because it's not just like, and then God told Moses to build a tabernacle, make it really nice so I can live there. The descriptions that God gives for the construction of the tabernacle are incredibly detailed. They are precise. There is precision in these things. I'll give you an example. Exodus 25, 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. And there's like several chapters in a row of everything in the temple, from what the priests are supposed to wear, from what the lighting looks like, what's in there, how the walls should be, absolute, like, perfect detail. And then after you read through all this detail of this building, the Bible goes and then basically repeats itself all over again. So at the beginning it says, do this, make it this tall, this length, and then it repeats itself after its accomplishment. It lets you know that so-and-so did it exactly like it was supposed to be done. So here's that taking place with the section we just read. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half with its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height, and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made a molding of gold around it. So it's like this brutal detail, and then it repeats itself. It's like... Exodus wants you to know when it comes to this temple, the thing that houses the presence of God, there is specific direction and you better get it right because we're going to review later in the Bible who did it and if they got it right. But if you're honest with yourself, it sort of makes boring reading. It's like I know Christians don't like admitting that, but you know, you skip over the genealogies a lot. It's because we're modern people, we don't understand what the literature is trying to do. Genealogies are awesome. But it's just, we, we don't do genealogies as a culture, so we're not familiar with how they're working. It's same with this tabernacle business. This is where God is going to dwell. So let's get into detail exactly how it's going to be. Now, something else interesting about the tabernacle. The tabernacle appears in the book of Exodus. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, when you think the book of Exodus, what do you think of? Just shout some things out. Moses, wilderness, 10 plagues, Pharaoh, 10 commandments, okay? If you were to like, think about Exodus, those are the things that come to mind, which is fair because they're all in the book of Exodus. But if, if you look at the breakdown of the book of Exodus, you might come to the conclusion that the book of Exodus really isn't about Moses or the 10 plagues or the wandering in the wilderness, It's about the tabernacle. Let me show you what I mean. Exodus begins with four chapters on the call of Moses. Okay, Moses gets called, goes, you know, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. 
Then there's 12 chapters on the deliverance of Israel. Now I'm being generous here because I'm starting with like from the first time Moses confronts Pharaoh all the way down to the Red Sea's been parted and they've crossed and they're celebrating and singing songs. So that includes the plagues, Red Sea, the parting of the, the, the sea, all of that stuff. 12 chapters of that. Then there's three chapters on provision in the wilderness. The Israelites are walk, wandering in the desert. They don't have food. God provides. They don't have water. God provides. Then there's six chapters where God establishes the law. This includes the Ten Commandments and much more. Six chapters. Okay? Then, 12 of the last 15 chapters deal with the tabernacle. 12 of the last 15 chapters. Now, if you were watching a movie and like the last 30% of the movie was about this, you'd go, all this other stuff is like a setup for the last quarter of the movie. Which I'm not saying that's the case, but we need to look at the book of Exodus differently. Because if we just judge it by like mere content, man, this book is a big chunk of it about the description of the tabernacle. And that's actually the ending and the climax is all about the tabernacle. It's even more interesting, as you notice, it's 12 of the last 15 chapters deal with the tabernacle. Why is it 12 of the last 15? What, what's, what's inserted? What's the break? Well, in all this discussion of the temple, there's a break that talks about sin, and a specific sin. The sin is when the people of Israel make the golden calf. They make a golden calf to worship a false god. And you ask the question, like, why is that in the dead center? Why is there this, all this just detail about the temple and then the golden calf incident? Israel had no way to deal with corporate sin. They had no way to deal with if the nation as a whole fails. What do we do with the sin thing? What do we do with sin? So what is one of the main functions of the tabernacle or temple? It's the place where forgiveness happens. It's the place where sin is dealt with. It's where you go and make sacrifice and the priests are there. So it's sort of like in the midst of this temple, oh man, human beings sin, and so now we gotta give directions on how to do the forgiveness thing. But the forgiveness thing, the sin thing, is not the primary function of the temple. It's a secondary issue. Because if there was no sin, you wouldn't be making sacrifices for sin at the temple. So what is the primary function of a tabernacle then? The primary the fundamental, the foundational function of the temple is this is how God is going to live with his people. And God himself states this, Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may, I may dwell in their midst. What is the primary purpose of a tabernacle? It's so that God can live with his people. Now you have all that Jewish background from the Old Testament. The tabernacle is about God putting a building up so that he could dwell among his people. Go back to John 1. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What is John trying to say? In the past, God lived with his people through the, 
the temple or the tabernacle. Now, the fullness of time, or as the author of Hebrews would put it, at the culmination of the ages, God is making his presence known by sending his son. And in the son, in Jesus, is the very presence of God. And thus, this is how God is choosing to dwell with his people as a human, one of them. Now, it goes on and says something even crazy, that human beings can actually behold this mystery. And the word became flesh, skenao, tabernacled, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, think of all the elements that are going on in this passage. There is the word becoming flesh. That's the, in, the theological term for that is Incarnation. God putting on human flesh. And why is he doing so? So that he can dwell, he can live with his people. And the claim of John is that people could actually behold that and see that, which to the Greek philosophers would have been scandalous because to see the logos, the substance of reason that structures all of reality, to see and behold that would be death, it would be impossible. So John makes these crazy claims. No, all of this is happening in the person of Jesus. Now go back with all of that information to that line in Hark the Herald Angels. Now you know how awesome these Christmas songs are. Listen. Veiled in flesh is the taking upon of humanity, the Godhead see. Godhead, um, the word head here doesn't have any relationship to the word head in English. Like, uh, it actually is an old school that just meant godhood. So it's like a poetic way of saying the, the substance of God or that which is God. So, veiled in humanity, wrapped in human flesh, God himself we see. We see him. Remember John says we see the glory. Hail, worship the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. So see how just a few words strung together can actually be put together because the author has saturated themselves in Scripture. They connect these dots. Now again, I'm not sure if like when the guy wrote it, he has John 1 next to him, but the theology of John 1 is all over this. And this is the radical, crazy claim of Christianity, that God himself, Logos, would become a human being to save humanity. Now, with all of that, there's a big challenge I'd like to give you for Christmas. After the the death of Jesus, um, the scriptures say that he ascends to the right hand of the Father, And he's currently there, still in in body. Jesus is still incarnate. The Son of God is in a resurrected body at the right hand of the the, the Father. And right hand doesn't, I mean, don't think literal like, oh, God the Father's right hand and Jesus right there. That, That means authority. If you're at the right hand of someone, that means the authority of the one whom you're sitting next to belongs to you. So Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's in a physically resurrected body. And so the Bible then, in the New Testament, uses different language for, for temple. The Bible goes, where is the, the temple now in the New Testament? And the Apostle Paul would tell believers, Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, he tells you this, your body now functions 
as the temple, tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. So God is everywhere. But now God is uniquely manifesting his presence through the lives of Christians. Now, sometimes that's really difficult to see. You know, especially with some people who claim to be Christian. You're like, oh, man, I don't see. I just see the devil in you, man. But if you're around a wise and mature Christian who has spent years loving Jesus, and you're hurting or in pain, you know just having them walk in the room to comfort you is going to be a blessing. It's like you feel like some mysterious divine presence. It's not as if they're God. It's just they have a type of love that isn't like just cheap earthly love. And so the Bible says it's because God uniquely is with believers, which is an incredible challenge for you. Because that just doesn't mean like we often take it, oh, I I have God with me, so cool. No, no, no. There's a burden and weight with that. Why? Why is there a burden and weight with that? Because what was the function of the tabernacle temple? It's the place where God is to uniquely manifest his presence, but it's also the place where God is dealing with sin and reconciling people back unto himself. That's why Paul would say, you're a minister of reconciliation. In your body, the Holy Spirit is there and you are supposed to be an agent of reconciliation. You are a people about this forgiveness business. So when you proclaim Jesus to people, you are doing it in the name of Jesus and you're offering through the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit what the temple often did in the Old Testament. Now, it's not like you're God or you have the ability to forgive sins. It's the Holy Spirit who is in you, but that ministry of reconciliation is working in and through you. And so, my Christmas challenge for you all is to, like, recognize that weight. You've been called to be a minister of reconciliation. Now, some of you, probably very few of you, if you're honest, and if you have some loved ones here with you today, you don't have to to be transparent, but very few of you are probably going into situations for Christmas where it's like everyone's a Christian. They all love Jesus. We don't even like we. It's so we don't even exchange presents. We just open up our Bible and do a Bible study on Christmas. It's like it's probably not the case. Probably you are go, going into situations where people are not Christian. They're hostile to Christianity. And if you're like most families, you're probably going into some situations where you don't even like some of the people there. And if you're brutally honest, it's because some of them have hurt you immensely. Broken relationships with moms and dads, brothers and sisters. I mean, you know it. And so my challenge for you is just to recognize who you are in Christ and the weight that that carries. So who are your loved ones who have not been reconciled to Jesus? Who are they? Name them in your head right now. Begin to pray for them right now. Begin to ask God that he would work a miracle, that they too might know the love of Christ. 
and that as you walk into the room on Christmas, they don't go, oh man, here's Bubba. Everyone hates Bubba. No, no, that they would feel a sense of love from you. Give those people to God. Give them to God. So that's the Christmas challenge. There's one other thing I want to do before, before we close. So I want to deal with this final issue of God dwelling with people. Because that's what the story of Christmas is about. Emmanuel is what? God with us. So the Christmas story is about God coming to be with us. But if you understand the entire story of Scripture, you realize that God wanting to dwell with his people is not just the story of Christmas. God being pleased with man to dwell is like the essential plot line from beginning to end. So what do you have in the garden in Adam, with Adam and Eve? God dwelling with his creation. It says that God walked with Adam. Then what happens? Sin, right? And this is where every Christian, no matter how long you've been growing up in church, you get bad theology here. We all do this. We have a view of God that actually distorts what the story is saying. We've been told something, and we believe, we tell ourselves this, that we sin, and God could not be in the presence of sin, and so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. It's like, where did that come from? That's not what happens. It's not as if Adam and Eve sin, and God has to go run and hide, because, oh, I'm, I'm so holy, I can't be tainted by this sin. God is not hiding in the text. Who sins? Adam and Eve. Who then runs from God? Adam and Eve are the ones who are running. They are the ones who are hiding. And who goes looking? Who goes pursuing? God. It is human beings who run and hide from God. And it's God who searches in love. So humans are the ones hiding. And so then what happens with the tabernacle? God wants to what? Dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. Then they sin. And so he creates a way for there to be forgiveness of sin and they could have a relationship with him. Then God goes, okay, I, I, I want to dwell with my people so I'm going to come a human so I can be with them and be like them. And then what do we do? We kill them. God is not hiding. We're the ones running and hiding. We're on the run, and it's God who relentlessly pursues us in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and then with Jesus. Now, there will come a time, we could begin passing out communion. There will come a time where there will be no need for temple or tabernacle. And so the Bible ends with this issue of God dwelling with his people. I'll turn you to the end of the book of Revelation. The very end of the, the story. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from, he from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful, rich imagery. We don't have time to get into all the details, but here's, here's the key. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. How does it end? No need for temple, no need for tabernacle because God will dwell with his people. This is the story from Adam and Eve to temple to tabernacle to Jesus to the end of all things. God being pleased with humanity to dwell, living with his people. Now, what happens when human beings finally stop running from God? What happens when human beings finally stop running from God at the end of Revelation? No more running, no more hiding, no more sin, no more death, no more pain. What's the, what's the effect of human beings stop, stopping to run? It's this. And then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What happens when you stop running? God, like a father, wipes your tears. So maybe some of you need to hear it read like this. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who has seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. If you are running from God, today might be the day you stop. And trust me, you could be at church at a 9 a.m. service on a Sunday morning and still be running from God. You could be sitting in a pew at a church and still be running from God. And the good news is, no matter how much you run, no matter how much you hide, there is one who pursues. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let's stand as we take communion.